0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, Acts chapter 7. If you haven't already, if you would turn there. Last week, we continued our study in Acts, but we looked more at the man, Stephen. Stephen. Stephen, who we'll study more of here today. Stephen, who was described as full of faith and power, a man who was so controlled by and filled with the Spirit that the peace of God shone on his very face, that it was the peace of God, the fullness of the Spirit that he was empowered with, that he was equipped with, saturated his speech It saturated his behavior. It was seen on his face, even when confronted with the Sanhedrin, what was the most powerful group of men that existed in this time in this area. He was at peace. And what we'll read today in Acts chapter 7 is the sermon, the message that he shared, that was intended to draw these Pharisees, these Sadducees, this Sanhedrin, to draw their attention to the hypocrisy that they possessed. We talked about Stephen's life. And then subsequent to that, the call on every man and woman to live a godly life. To be so equipped that we too could have an impact for the kingdom. And the exhortation that we were left with, as we saw in 2 Timothy, was one to turn away from this world. To turn away from this world and the ungodly people who mark these perilous times. It was Paul who said that in the last days, perilous times will come, and he did less of describing what the times would look like and more describing the people that existed during that time. And it's those people who act that way, who, whether for selfish gain or whether in complete just abandonment of the Word of God, are dangerous, perilous individuals, and we're called to turn away from them. Secondly, we were called to follow those then who are true, follow true teachers, to surround ourselves with those who will build us up in our faith, to surround ourselves with those who will encourage us and lift us up. And finally, then, to continue in God's Word, to be faithful and continuing in His Word, pursuing the Word of God. And today, as we continue in our study of Acts, we'll dig into Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin. Now, this was the longest sermon that we have within the book of Acts, if not within the New Testament, aside from the teachings of Jesus. And what we'll see in Stephen's divinely inspired message is not what one would expect. Stephen, who was accused of speaking against Moses, against the law, and against the tabernacle, he doesn't provide a defense for himself. This man doesn't seek to acquit himself of any wrongdoing. Rather, he takes the Jewish leaders through a history of their faith and points them to their own hypocrisy. He was a selfless man who was at peace with God, who wanted only to bring the truth to light. And we have here in the book of Acts, at the beginning of the church, a survey or a brief history of, of Judaism. We see this, and it's somewhat, to say it's oddly placed, wouldn't be the right thing, but, but this sermon seems to be kind of plopped in there, this history of the Jewish faith, if you will. And we can know by that, too, that the fact that it's there is that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have this, wanted us to to see this, to read this. And to a degree, we have somewhat of a spiritual interpretation of this history differently than what we have within the Old Testament. We get Stephen's perspective on it and how he ties the history to, again, the hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders. I'll be honest that to a degree it was somewhat difficult to prepare simply because of both the length of the sermon, the passage itself, and how to appropriately break it up, and then what does the Spirit have for us in terms of practical application from it? And I believe part of what the Lord desires for us to see in this chapter is exactly what Stephen was putting before the Sanhedrin. That when we begin to value tradition, when we value religion over relationship we miss out on so much of what God has for us, and we become the hypocrites. And it's my hope, it's my prayer, that we, differently than those who have gone before us, would never allow the ritual or the routine, maybe better stated for us today, the routine of our faith to take the place of the joy we should have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we go to your word, as we embark into this sermon given to us through Stephen, the first martyr in the church, Lord, what a powerful message it is, and I pray one that we can receive here today and apply to our own lives. That if there be I mean, any of us here, Lord, that as the Spirit so leads are convicted in one of these areas, that maybe we have struggled with ritual and tradition and routine. Maybe we're at a point in our walks with you, Lord, where we've lost some of that fire, that desire, We've lost some of the relationship and things have just become monotonous or routine. But Lord, I pray you deal with our hearts in that way today, myself included, that we would leave here today with a great passion for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an excitement for the word of God, an excitement for the life that we've been called to and the opportunity we have to serve you on this earth. Lord, do that work here today. May your word come alive to us, Lord, to pierce our hearts and minds, to transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, the first thing we see here is that then the high priest said, Are these things so? And so again, Stephen was accused. The high priest, likely Caiaphas at this time, the same high priest that carried out the crucifixion with Jesus, is saying, Are these things so? What things? Well, the things that Stephen has been accused of, speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, speaking against the temple, saying that these things, and the temple in particular, was not necessary. And he's brought before the Sanhedrin and he's accused of these things. These, again, were the most powerful leaders in Israel. We believe even that this was potentially a time during transition within the Roman Empire, and that potentially even Pontius Pilate wasn't there at this time, that it was in a time of transition such that these leaders essentially had even more power. We'll see later on as they very quickly carry out a trial and stone, Stephen, that that's very likely the case that they were able to just do what they wanted. They had such authority at this particular time. And so this would be an uncomfortable situation to most people. But as we've already read, Stephen had the face of an angel before them. He had such peace that he possessed, and it came not from his knowledge, not from his skill set, not from his expertise, but rather from the power of the Holy Spirit working within him. And Stephen, he does not attempt to defend himself, but rather he points these men to the truth. He did not care what was going to happen to him. Most likely at this point, being that he was accused of these things, standing before the Sanhedrin, standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, there's no doubt that he was thinking, boy, this seems a little familiar. He likely understood what was going to happen to him in a very short period of time, and his focus was on the truth. And in verse 2, and he said, Brethren and fathers, now as we go through, we're going to go through this whole sermon today, so there's chunks here that I'm just going to kind of read through, so read along with me and, and then we'll pause. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And so here Stephen embarks on a history he goes back to Abraham. Abraham, this man that serves as such a father of the faith, if you will, for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. This man who is so critical to the faith of many, who many lay hold of, who many claim and boldly proclaim. Abraham had been called by God to come out of a heathen land to a land that God would show him. And God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed it. It was faith that Abraham exercised, believing in what God had promised him, though he did not always see it. And God was true to his word. He had a plan. As Stephen begins to unfold this narrative, we can see, we can read this, and of course we know we have these accounts in the Old Testament, and and the reality is, is that God's plan was true. God's promises were true. We see these things fulfilled. God was true to his word. He had a plan that he carried out. And the Jews prided themselves in the lineage of Abraham. In fact, they boasted in Abraham. But what Stephen said to them was, you don't know him. They confused their physical descent with a spiritual faith experience. Let me say that again. They confused their physical descent from Abraham with a spiritual experience. They prided themselves in this covenant of circumcision, seeing themselves as more than they were through a ritual, a physical act, failing to see the importance of that inward spiritual transformation that was intended to take place. As Christians, here's the first thing that we see here is that we need to let go of any notion today that our faith can be rooted in the faith of our mothers in our fathers, or our culture, or even the routine that exists within our churches today. These things, yes, they become a part of our experience. They absolutely contribute to learned behavior. It becomes, yes, a part of who we are. But just because your parents were one thing, just because you grew up in a small town that was all about God and country with church on Sunday mornings and revivals on Friday night, doesn't mean that you then, because of that, possess a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You need a personal faith, a personal relationship. No amount of tradition within the church can take the place of that. And we'll see then in the following verses from verse 9 through 43 that Stephen shifts his focus then to the patriarchs, and specifically to deliverers that he would raise up. Joseph and Moses, both a picture of Jesus. And we'll see how God's people, in different ways, rejected them the first time and then received them at their second coming, their second attempt to get a hold of the hearts of the people. And it will reinforce as we'll see this picture of Israel's relationship with Jesus Christ. We must take from it our own relationship as well and ask ourselves do I have that? There's no riding coattails into heaven. But you, each and every one of you, need to develop an individual and personal faith with Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 9, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt, and all his house found favor with Gentiles. Joseph, who admittedly lacked a little tact in the way he shared visions with his brothers, how he told them of the dreams that he was having and how one day they would bow down before him. Having an older brother of my own, I can only imagine if on a regular basis I spoke of my vision of him submitting to me, his younger brother, of bowing down to me, and then if he witnessed this favoritism that existed with my own father and as I walked around in my fancy coat that dad gave me, you know, this would start to create a little animosity amongst the brethren, would it not? And so we can see to a degree some of the feelings, perhaps, that his brothers had towards Joseph. We too, as we read through it, may think, hey man, why do you need? just quiet down a little bit? Don't boldly proclaim that. Favored by his father his brothers had had enough. And now their reaction to that, of course, was very extreme as they sold him into slavery, passing him off as dead. And as extreme as this was, God had a plan. As we've already read, this is that God was with him. God was with him the same way that he is with any of his children, especially when we are submitted to his will. When we submit to his plan and purpose in our lives, there may be things that come against us, there may be things that happen, but we can trust and know that God is with us. And Joseph found favor. He found favor in the land. He found favor with Pharaoh. He found favor with the Gentiles. You see, while the world may not always understand the Christian, while they may not always support and believe the things that we do, there are many times when we carry out and live by biblical principles and see and find that we find favor with the world. Many of you, I have no doubt, find favor in the workplace, and, and people think, boy, so-and-so doing this, and, and when you do this and you do that, it, it, you get rewarded for it, and you're inside just think I'm just doing what the Bible tells me to do. Biblical principles are largely received and accepted within the world when they're not called biblical principles. When the world just sees them as character, hard work, but we know. And so the same was true then of Joseph, that as God was with him, as God promised to continue to support him, also knowing the plan that he would carry out, the necessity of what would happen on down the line, it produced positive results for Joseph. And so we read in verse 11, now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, a couple of things that we need to see here, the first of which is that notice the way in which Stephen is communicating this story. Here, remember, he's before the Sanhedrin as he's explaining these things. And I have no doubt that at this point, the religious leaders were were largely in agreement with him. I would think that as he's saying things like, and our fathers found no sustenance, that they were agreeing. They were saying, yes, okay, they're tracking with him. What he's doing here is he's drawing them in. He's helping them to see that they are on the same page as it relates to the history of their fathers, as it relates to the the founding of their faith. He's gonna bring them to a point where all of a sudden, yeah, it might be, it might be a bit of a surprise hook that he throws in there when all of a sudden they go, whoa, wait a second. You know, but all along here they're following him, they're tracking they're saying, okay, I, I imagine they're they're rather vehement in their agreement. They're, yeah, you know, because they're still indignant over what they believe that Stephen is doing, but here he's helping them to see that, listen, we agree that this is how things happened. And here then we read that the second time Joseph's dream was fulfilled, the second encounter that they had with him, they didn't receive him the first time around. His brothers rejected him but here as he serves as, as quite frankly, the, the only Savior that they have during this time of famine, the only resource that they have, the only option that they have, they begin to understand and they see his dream fulfilled the second time. And here, 75 of them, as it says, 75 people strong here as they enter the land, and eventually they'll leave more than a million. God was growing a nation God's plan was at work. His purpose was playing out. And we read on in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and they multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. You see, He started with Abraham. He went to Joseph. And now he's bringing Moses to the forefront. And so the king arose and he did not know Joseph. And this man dealt, verse 19, treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned and all the wisdom of the Egyptians And was mighty in words and deeds. Many of you know the account of Moses and the little basket, and he's floating in the reeds. They want to spare his life, and he's found. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And he's brought into the palace, and he's raised, as it says, as her own. Now, throughout the Word of God, Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt is always a picture of the world. And though it serves a purpose at times, though blessing comes from it, at times, it is never to be confused with or exchanged with the land that God had intended for His children, for His people. And here, Moses, having grown up in the house of Pharaoh, who had amassed great knowledge, I mean, we often don't give the Egyptians credit for the knowledge that they amassed, for the library that they had, for the wisdom that they possessed. I mean, quite frankly, throughout the world, the Egyptians should be credited with much Yet, though Moses was raised in this, yet he had amassed such knowledge. Though he had experienced so many things living in the house of Pharaoh, his knowledge that he had amassed there was insufficient in preparing him for what God would have him to do. You see, the world here, as it were, can never give us what it is that we need to fully fulfill the call of God in our lives. We read last week in 2 Timothy that the Word of God makes us wise to salvation. You see, in the midst of a world who's telling us that we need to be wise for all of these different things, it's not saying that we are to be wise for salvation. It's the Word of God that gives us that understanding. It's the Word of God that helps us to understand our faith. It's the Word of God that grows us in our faith. And here, once again, though Moses had amassed much knowledge, there was still much that he needed to learn. And boy, would he get that lesson. It says in verse 23, now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Forty years he'd been growing up in the land. Forty years he was a member of the family of Pharaoh in the house. Yet he knew who he was, and he began to understand more what God had had called him to, what God had placed on his heart, and came into his heart than to visit his brethren, to go out and to see the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, in verse 24, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You see, Moses, as God began to stir his heart to who he was, to what he was called to, to fulfilling God's purpose and plan in his life, He was so moved to go out and see his brethren, to see the condition in which they were living. What had maybe for some time largely he'd been blind to, not really recognizing, now as he became more aware of who he was, he had a concern for his brethren. Now, many believe that this act that he carried out against the Egyptian was certainly not well thought out. The decision was made somewhat in haste and in anger, not thought through, as he didn't intend to kill this Egyptian. But he was defending his brethren, and, and he likely thought that, well, they would be excited, that they would understand, that they would see and know, too, who Moses was and, and be bought into him and his leadership and realize that we have one with influence and authority, a leader who's already there in Pharaoh's house that can save us. But, but that wasn't the case. And as they didn't first receive him, he became scared, concerned. No, he thought, clearly, Pharaoh's going to have my head for this, for killing an Egyptian. And so he ran. Moses at this point, 40 years old, and he now goes out into the desert. It was not yet his time. He had much to learn. Now, we look at this and we could say, God's people, there—they maybe they would. Maybe they would have had a chance for deliverance if they would have just recognized who he was, if they would have connected the dots and thought, gosh, we've got somebody who's a leader. But they didn't. They rejected him at first. And in verse 30, and when 40 years had passed... And isn't it amazing how that happens? You know, 40 years, I haven't hit that yet. But I think of, I've done a lot. Boy, this has been tough. You know, we had to work really hard. I think back to first grade. You know how hard first grade? I kid, I kid. But think about that, the span of 40 years. Think about how much we fit into that time. And yet, in the Word of God, and of course, this is Stephen's sermon, but this happens within the Word. It happens with a God who is eternal, to whom time is irrelevant. And 40 years had passed. And there was a lot that went on during this time. But 40 years passes by. Now, by most standards, Moses is an old man. And here an angel, verse 30, of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Forty years passes by. This 80-year-old man in many respects and by most standards, an older man and here God was calling him now to finish the work. You see, this should be immediately an encouragement to each and every one of you. So many of you that maybe feel as if you've missed certain aspects of God's calling in your life. The reality is though things may be different now, that yes, the timetable changed, that yes, certain things can't be redone, that there's still an opportunity, that God hasn't left you God hasn't given up on you. God doesn't say, oh, well, you weren't paying attention then and you just totally missed out and now you're just out there on your own. God still wants to work in you, still wants to work through you. I was just talking with somebody last week. I have to go down a rabbit trail here, but he specifically called me to ask about older retired men within the church. And he said, if you have any older retired men that are willing to serve, we need them. He had just completed the rapid response training up at the Cove as part of the Billy Graham Foundation, and they go out to all these different natural disasters. And these groups that go out are largely comprised of retired men that they can use, that have the flexibility, the knowledge, the experience, the wisdom to go out and to help, to respond to these people who are in crisis. And you know what? That's counterintuitive to what our culture says, right? Well, today, it's you're retired, so well done, you're finished. Here's your golf clubs. Go ahead and hit the course, right? I mean, that's what the world tells us, does it not? But here this guy was calling to say, hey, if you've got anybody, we need them. We can use them. You see, God still desires to use each and every one of us, regardless of where we're at. He wants to work. He wants to move. And so here God calls him, and he appears to him in a very powerful way, through the burning bush, Moses encountered that God, this was this was an incredible experience. One, because yes, there was a burning bush here, which was unusual, that it wasn't consumed. Many of you have lit a Christmas tree on fire after the holidays, and you know that thing just goes right up, right? You've seen a burning bush, but it's gone. This thing was burning, and it wasn't consumed. And then, of course, the voice of God, and Moses becomes aware of what he's encountering here, Then he's told, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. This is an incredible experience. And Stephen in particular wants to emphasize this because what he wants for the Sanhedrin to understand, and we'll go there shortly, is that God doesn't need a tabernacle. He doesn't need a temple and he doesn't need a church. That Moses here had an experience, he had an encounter with God and it was in the place that he least expected it. And he wants to emphasize that for them as he begins to continue to draw them in because they're tracking with him right now. There's not anything that he's said so far that they think, well, this is wrong. And so here Moses has this encounter and it speaks to the relationship that he was able to have with God. Too often still today, our relationship with God, our time with God is restricted in time, place, and experience. Whether through the perfect kind of worship, the right style of teaching, the certain type of fellowship that we need to have. Whatever the case may be, we too can limit our experience with God in such ways and and perhaps miss out on those burning bush moments that God desires to have where He wants to speak to us, where He wants to call us. God wants to show up in a big way in your life. But sometimes we're not interested in seeing Him there, and we don't have that experience. But Christian, be encouraged, as I've already established here, Moses... (laughs) He wasn't in his prime, if you will. By the world's standards, he was done. He'd run away, arguably missed out on much of what God had for him. But God says, I've heard the groanings of my people, and I will deliver them. He still wants to use Moses. He still has a plan that's going to unfold, and it's an incredible one. You don't think God doesn't hear the groaning of his people still today? And that he still has another deliverer. He has the ultimate deliverer of whom many of us here today know and love and serve and have received into salvation. And that deliverer, that deliverer, he's still coming back. There is still a second coming for our Lord Jesus Christ and everyone will see it. Just like Joseph and just like Moses, though he was rejected by many the first time, he is coming back. And he's not only still at work within us, but I absolutely believe that he's still at work for his nation, Israel, for his chosen people. You see, he says here, Stephen in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. These two events, with both Joseph and Moses, they illustrate Israel's treatment of Jesus. And this is now where Stephen is starting to go. He's got them on the line right here. He's hooked them. He's drawing them in. And now he's going to point them to Jesus. Both Joseph and Moses, they were rejected and they were received then at their second coming. And in like manner, we will see Jesus again. Everyone will see Jesus again. And we do know through the word of God that many will receive him. God has not cast away his people. He is still at work, even in our disobedience. Yet Israel does still rebel against God. And in verse 37, Stephen says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." You see, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. As Stephen began to continue to unfold and unpack what had happened, that yes, Moses was raised up as the deliverer, that he went back into Egypt, that he freed his people. He went to Pharaoh and he said, you, you must let my people go. And, and Pharaoh didn't do it. And, and plagues fell upon Egypt. And eventually they left. And these amazing things happened. And they were delivered. And they crossed over the Red Sea. And then as they went into the wilderness... You know, they weren't supposed to be out there that long. It was supposed to be a short journey to the land that God had given them, that He promised them. But they forgot so quickly what it is that God had done for them. They knew where Moses went. Moses, he went up onto Mount Sinai. Yeah, he was gone for a little while. But they used that opportunity to say, oh, I don't know where Moses is at. I don't know what happened. And they murmured amongst one another, and they were complaining about everything, and all these different things happened, and all of a sudden, boom, they're back into idol worship. How did that happen? Well, it says, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. That was the implication. It was a matter of the heart. We've read here a couple of times of the issue of the heart. They didn't turn around and walk back. Some of them may. Some of them maybe would have, if there was an opportune moment. See, it parted again. Here was a nice little path. But it doesn't matter. They went there in their hearts. They went back to the worship of idols. that had become a part of their lives during their time in the world. And so it is with us, church, that we must recognize this, that even in the midst of such faithfulness, we can so easily be faithless, disregarding the power of God in our lives and the things which we've seen him do for us. Instead, rejoicing in the work of our own hands. How easily it happens. How easily we go, I don't know where Moses went, but Here's what I feel like is right. In rebellion towards God, we turn back to the idols in our lives instead of fixing our eyes on the things above. The man of God thoroughly equipped is one who continues in the word of God. And like the law which Stephen is addressing here, though he's been accused of saying the law doesn't matter, he's saying the law is good if you follow it. Recognizing, yes, that it's incomplete and the fulfillment comes through Jesus Christ. And and then for the same thing for us, the Word of God. You know, we can look at the Word, and we can say, well, there's all these things I have to do, all these things I have to follow, all these rules and regulations. And that's what it seems like if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're in His Word, we recognize that it's profitable to us, it's beneficial, that it should not be something that is a burden to us, but rather a blessing and we must persist we must carry on and continue and not turn back to the world in our hearts if you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ you are a Christian then you have a past of some kind you have a past some of you are stuck sometimes in that past some of you are struggling to let go of that past some of you are are living in freedom and in victory and it's great but we all have something in the so-called bc days of our lives And every now and then we want to turn back to it. It rises up, it tempts us, it's whatever the case may be. And we've got to stay focused to continue in the Word of God, to not turn back in our hearts. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Mindful of our study in Revelation as we were there the past two weeks, as we got an account of of John in his vision of the throne room of heaven. Try and build a house for that. You can't even comprehend it. John is struggling to even describe it. He's saying things are sort of like this and like this and like that. I don't even fully understand what this giant thing is with wings and eyes all over it and faces, and they're singing and everyone's falling down. It's crazy, as he says, your heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? God can't be contained. Amen. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily then that the tabernacle or the temple was bad. God gave him direction for how to build it and how it was to function and the order that was to exist there for a time. But then Jesus, then Jesus came. And that veil was torn from top to bottom. But the problem is the Jews had exalted the position of the temple. What they accused, ironically, Stephen of destroying, they themselves had already destroyed. They destroyed it spiritually by making it a den of thieves and eventually physically because of the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem, because of their disobedience. And the call here to us, church, is to never elevate the temple above the relationship that we have with God. Whatever that may be in our lives. Just as the Israelites had turned back to Egypt in their hearts, turned back to the world in their hearts, we have to recognize those same idols in our own lives. They developed a relationship with the temple and everything it was about instead of with a relationship with God. And the message to us is essentially the same that, that whether it's your emphasis on the church itself, which some people do have, this is what a lot of people struggle with about Calvary chapels because so many Calvary chapels are not in a church because so many people, they want the nice church. They got to have the church experience. We need some really uncomfortable pews, you know, these benches, and we got to have some stained glass or this and that. I mean, people are. They get kind of hung up on these things. You know, so many Calvary chapels are in abandoned warehouses that were like, oh, I can do something with that. That's the one we came out of. So many people never even knew we were there. You can't drive down that street. Yes, there's actually a church down there. It was fun. It was fun to bring people to church because they were always like, whoa, this is amazing. So the emphasis can certainly be on the church as a building, but it can be a multitude of different things. It's about your religious preference that gets in the way of a relationship with Jesus Christ. God does not dwell in buildings. He dwells in us. And so the question becomes then too, is, is he dwelling in you today? Or is he still a God that you encounter in various places and experiences, but you haven't received into your heart, into your life? As Stephen says, and now it gets real. In verse 51, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You see here, Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, the very ones who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he's drawing them in the whole time. They're thinking, yeah, 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 I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. Oh, wait a second. You just called me stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. You just accused me of being a murderer of Jesus Christ. Now it got real for him. But do you think that Stephen all of a sudden said, oh, whoops, got a little caught up there. Sorry about that. No, he knew what he was doing. He was led of the Spirit. He was taking it right to the heart. 71 of the most powerful men in Israel accused of speaking against Moses, the law, and the temple. And Stephen says to them with such grace, with boldness, he didn't lose the angelic face that he had that was at such peace with the words that he was sharing, that it was even going to lead to his death. He simply said to them, you don't get it. You are the guilty ones. You boast in the law, but you don't keep it. Physically, religiously, these men were circumcised, but in their hearts they were not. And folks, I hope it's not too much of a reach here today to say that as I reflect on this, you know, and I think about, and there was conversations that happened this week outside of church related to the other ministry that I'm a part of. There's a lot of preference that exists within the church today. There are many who are at times indignant over preference. Things that they think should be this way or that they should be that way, but it's not rooted in the Word of God. And it doesn't stem from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Rather, it's passed off as the way things should be. And I'm guilty of this same thing. The religious leaders of the day had been so covered in their tradition, their preference, and their dead ritual that they could not accept anything new or to see what God was doing, in particular through their Savior, Jesus Christ foundationally, we must abandon religion in exchange for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the number one thing that we have to recognize here today. But beyond this, we must also abandon preference. Do not be so bogged down with what you prefer that you miss out on what God is doing. You see, Stephen, he goes on, and now we have the account in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A man twice described as one who was full of the Holy Spirit, having this amazing experience. And so the question becomes, does this describe you today? Does this describe me today? I'll tell you, not always. Some of you are thinking, yep, I know, Brennan. It's okay. Let's be honest. Let's be transparent. Let's recognize the fact that this doesn't always describe us. But that should be our aim, to be so full of the Holy Spirit that we operate with such grace and mercy and peace. And then as Stephen describes what he sees, Though the Jewish leaders knew the truth of what they had heard, they were so stiff-necked that they couldn't receive it, and it says they gnashed their teeth. They got angry, they got indignant, and they ran them right out of there. It says in verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. They just stopped hearing anything. I had this cocker spaniel growing up that had selective hearing. You know, Just get on this scent. You could be setting off foghorns, and the thing would not respond, you know? This is just done. I'm not listening anymore. So stubborn, right? And here they were. They stopped their ears. We're not listening anymore. And they ran at him with one accord. This is a time when being of one accord was not a good thing. They needed somebody there to go, hold on guys, hold on. We're getting a little, little too fired up here. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And you know where they sent him? You know where he was when he died? He was at Calvary. He's in the same location where Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was crucified. He's at the place where Jesus died. And the witnesses, it says, laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, this sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? It's in the same general area with the same peace, with the same forgiveness. And when we think about Jesus, Jesus who was fully man, who absolutely is our example. He is the perfect sacrifice. But of course, if any of you here today say, we want to be like Jesus. If any of you say that, you know, you can be or that you've arrived, you say, hey, you know, I've accomplished it. I'm there. Well, then we're going to have a problem. But we do see a man. We do see another man here who was such an example, who was not that long before chosen amongst the people within the church to say, this guy's got a great reputation. This guy's full of the Spirit. This is a guy we want to serve as a deacon. This is a guy we want to serve within the church. And he had such a witness that he becomes the first martyr You see, this should give us hope. This should make us excited about the fact that we can pursue God in such a way, the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the outpouring of the Spirit on our lives, that there's hope that we could live in such a way as he's lived, to have such peace, to have such grace. And he says, don't charge them with this sin. A life full of the Spirit, he saw things from a different perspective. And now, here's the other thing, that some of you may look at this and you think to yourself, well, what a shame. What a shame that this man so full of the spirit was killed in such a way. Imagine the things that he could have done. What else would we have heard from him? What letter would he have written? What would have been in the word of God? Think of the things that he could have done. But you know what? There was someone there on that day that heard this message, who witnessed this death, who was no doubt shaken to the core. Saul, as it says that they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, was likely one who, as Stephen was describing, looking up into heaven, describing what he saw, Saul looking up as well, no doubt said, I don't see anything. Why do I not see anything? He didn't see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, who was standing, not seating, because I believe that he was ready to welcome Stephen home. You see, we don't always see the fruit we don't always see the fruit that may come from our testimony or our witness. We don't know the fruit that came from the outreach that we did downtown recently, the individuals we were able to pray with and share the gospel with and encourage. We don't know what's happening today with them. Every now and then we get a glimpse, praise God, of the fruit that comes. But that's not for us to see. But here, as Stephen died, the Spirit was doing a work in a man named Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. And not just the Apostle Paul, but one who would carry the gospel to Samaria and to the Gentiles and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, we are beneficiaries today of the witness of Stephen, for it turned the gospel from the Jews to the rest of the world. Here's our application for today. Three things. One, don't have a misunderstanding of your spiritual heritage. Family and culture cannot take the place of personal faith. You must pursue that. Family and culture cannot take the place of a personal faith. We've got to each have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, God is not done with Israel, and he's not done with us. He is not done with us. And finally, stubbornness, disobedience, and preference to your own opinions ultimately leads to a denial of the truth of the Word of God and the work of the Spirit. If we get too bogged down in preference, we're going to miss out on what God is doing. You know, God may not call you to be a martyr like Stephen, though He may. We don't know what's before us. But for most, He's not called us to be a martyr. But He does call each and every one of us to be living sacrifices. He calls us to present ourselves to God, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which comes through the Word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we Bring our time here this morning to a close. I pray for each of these here, Lord, myself included, Lord, that the the Word of God would continue to resonate within our hearts and minds, that we would see here the example of those who have gone before us and the way in which they rejected our Savior, the way in which they were so rooted in tradition that they missed what was happening, that we would continue to see the emphasis on the Word of God and transforming us, that we would see, Lord, that throughout history and still today, I firmly believe you desire to do work, that you desire to do work within us individually and through us corporately. We praise you and thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, was taken forth into the whole world of which we are beneficiaries of that today, as ones who are grafted in, that right now in this moment, we can come before you in prayer. What a gift that is. And Lord, I pray for any who are here today, Lord, that some portion of the message this morning, perhaps convicted them that maybe it's the relationship that's been that's been deteriorating that it's been more about ritual than it has been about relationship that maybe there's elements of preference and routine that have gotten in the way and allowed someone not to see and experience what it is that you're doing, Lord, whatever the case may be, I pray work in our lives, Lord, work in our hearts to remove anything there that's not of you. And help us, Lord, as we prepare to go out back into the world, Lord, that we do so with a strength and faith, with a renewed passion and desire to develop our relationship with you, such that it could be a light to a lost and dying world, we pray. Father, we love you, we praise you. Be with us here, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly eBulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.